0: You are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Before I uh, reflect on this reading from the Gospel according to Luke, a reading that makes Jesus sound like a rather uncompromising and somewhat grumpy sort of character... I do need to say just a few things about our reading from Lamentations. Often called the Lamentations of Jeremiah, this book is a five-chapter, all-but-unrelenting lament for the brokenness of Jerusalem in the days following its defeat and destruction by the Babylonians. It is, at points, something of a horror show, As Jeremiah describes, almost unutterable loss and degradation in that city. Yet right in the middle, it breaks, and he offers these extraordinary words. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me, so lament. And then, but, but, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There is an insistence at the heart of lamentations that the whole truth of loss and brokenness be told, that it be held in the presence of God in a kind of prayer, and that there must be a moment when the steadfast love of the Lord is proclaimed, and proclaimed against all odds. If you imagine some of the worst news stories you've seen on the television regarding the devastation of some of the Ukrainian cities, That's Jerusalem under Babylon. But don't back away from the hard truth, Jeremiah says. Say it all. Shout it to the very throne of heaven. There is no shame in utter lament. And in the very midst of lamenting, dare to affirm that God's love is steadfast. God's mercies are ever-present, even if we can't see them right now. God's faithfulness is great, even if we are believing it through clenched teeth. Dare to say such things in the darkest hours of a hard, hard night, whether or not you can entirely believe them. Trust Jeremiah's words here. Poor, cranky, beleaguered, fitfully faithful Jeremiah. Because under our God, sometimes more than a full-voiced lament and a stubborn faith will do. Now, with that kind of tucked in view to the gospel, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, Jesus tells his disciples, say, we are worthless slaves. We have only done what we ought to have done. Nothing like a bit of battering ourselves on the head to make for good followers of Jesus. Or is that actually what's at stake? Let me contrast this little piece of teaching for a moment with another story from earlier in Luke's Gospel, one that we dealt with just a while back on a Sunday night. Whereas today's Gospel reading says that a master would never never welcome the hard-working slave to take a place at the table, but rather would make the slave serve the master a meal before being able to feed himself. the story we read a while back from the 12th chapter of Luke, Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, the master will fasten his belt Have the slaves sit down to eat, and he will come and he will serve them. You hear the contrast, of course. In the earlier little parable, the master is so delighted by the work of his slaves that he sits them down and gives them a meal. While in this later parable tonight, the master is portrayed as more or less scoffing at such a violation of the customs, Of the master-slave dynamic. In short, Jesus seems to be able to work both sides of the street as he tries to hammer truth into the hard heads of the disciples. And maybe he is working both sides of the street because his point is not to give them a book of master-slave directions. In the case of this parable this evening, you need to skip back a few verses and read a section that the lectionary jumped us right by to get a sense of what he's doing. Once you have at least a taste of the context, this harder teaching tonight begins to make a good deal more sense. So, in the verses prior to, to where the disciples say increase our faith, which is kind of where we began, Jesus has been pressing on matters of sin and forgiveness. He begins by saying, if another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. This is a kind of protocol for life in an actual community in that it means that if I do something that offends or otherwise destructively strikes off the mark, and off the mark is the literal translation of the Greek word hamartia, which we translate in English as sin, then if I'm off the mark or I've offended you, it's incumbent on you to come and tune me up. Jamie, you've done this. I, I, I'm hurt, I'm injured, I'm troubled by what you've said or done. In a community, Jesus is saying, you can't just let things simmer on a low boil. Or, this is even worse, you can't go and talk to Larry about how troubled you are by me. You come to me is part of the message, right? You don't want to get into triangulation. Jesus would tell you, come and talk directly to me and let me know what I've done or said that might have been hurtful or offensive or whatever. That's the kind of oil that will keep the gears of a community running, keep them from seizing up. And then he continues... And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back and says seven times, I repent, you must forgive. Which takes this teaching up to a whole other level. All you can control is your decision to forgive me when I've been a jerk and to do it again and again and again. I might repent, apologize, promise to do better, but then do exactly the same offensive thing that day once again. I might even have been completely sincere in apologizing to you for whatever it is that's offended you. Completely sincere, but I keep on stumbling. Seven times in a day, Jesus says, forgive give him another chance, start again, which puts it on the same sort of extraordinary playing field as his famous response to Peter, that Peter must forgive 70 times, 7 times, which is essentially endlessly. Well, the poor old disciples have heard this call to be honest if somebody offends them and to forgive and forgive and forgive and work towards reconciliation even when it's difficult. And they look at themselves and they look at their own failings, their own missing of the mark, and they keep having to say to themselves, He wants us to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and it just leaves their heads spinning, which is where tonight's gospel picks up. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. We can't do this, we need more. Increase our faith, they say, because the sort of economy of honesty and forgiveness that you're setting before us is way more than we can handle. Increase our faith so that we have at least a fighting chance of being the sort of disciples you want us to be. Increase our faith because we can't do it on our own. And then he says, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which might have been heard by them as a call to work harder to build up their own faith. But that's not the only way to read the text. This is how N.T. Wright sees things. He writes, perhaps not surprisingly, the disciples realize that all this will require more faith than they think they have. Jesus is quick to respond. It's not great faith you need. It's faith in a great God. And then he goes into his challenging little parable. With the hard-working slave who has to wait until the master is eaten and drunk, before he can quench his own thirst and fill his empty stomach. And then once the master's eaten, once you've done all you're ordered to do as a slave, the only thing you have left to say is, we are worthless slaves. We've only done what we ought to have done, or in the somewhat more nuanced translation that Bishop Wright offers, we're just ordinary slaves. All we've done is what we had to do. Yet, keep firmly in view that Jesus is not setting out protocols for master-slave relations, but rather is pressing his followers toward being real kingdom people. I'd even go so far as to say that ultimately Jesus' life and message is one that has no room whatsoever for an institution such as slavery. Yet he's never shy of using unusual characters and scenarios to press his followers forward. And here I believe that the biblical scholar Greg Carey is absolutely on the right track when he offers the following. He writes, Some seek a mystical experience, a faith that works like a drug and helps us get through life's extraordinary challenges some aspire to faith as an antidote to struggle with enough faith the tele-evangelists tell us we can conquer doubt illness even economic hardship well, you know those versions of faith i'm sure versions that have us always as victorious overcomers who only stumble when our faith gives way to doubt But frankly, that's not the way our world necessarily works, nor is it the way that God works. You know, I'm sure of people who have prayed faithfully and earnestly for a healing or some other miraculous response, but then seem to come up empty. You know them. You may be among them. There may have been moments in each of our lives where we pray desperately for something, and the answer seems to be, "I don't hear anything." Goodness, even St. Paul had to face the moment when his relentless prayer for relief from his thorn in the flesh was answered only by this. "God said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you." For power is made perfect in weakness, and on he stumbled with the thorn in the flesh, whatever physical malady that was. And so Greg Carey continues in his reflection on the passage. He writes, In this light, mustard seed faith and modest discipleship may just be what we need. By God's grace, discipleship requires not unshakable confidence, or spectacular accomplishments. Luke's Jesus indeed makes extraordinary demands of his disciples, yet sometimes discipleship requires ordinary and daily practices of fidelity and service. Sometimes discipleship requires ordinary and daily practices of fidelity and service, and isn't that just so? I'd even go so far as to say that often discipleship requires ordinary and daily practices of faithfulness and service endlessly, or what Eugene Peterson famously called a long obedience in the same direction. Step after step after step after step. And I believe that this is precisely what Jesus wanted to knock into the thick skulls of his disciples And what they would ultimately get when they stood on the other side of his death. When they stood in the light of his resurrection and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And actually began to become his people, his church, his ecclesia. On their way to that place, through his life, through his death and in the resurrection light. He sometimes had to rattle their cages which is where this tough and unusual little parable comes in. And sometimes our cages need to be rattled in much the same way, which is why we can't skip by the uncomfortable bits of the Gospels, but rather keep reading our way through the whole of this odd, yet ultimately liberating set of stories. And we do that again and again and again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the donate button, located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.